welcome. It's good to see everybody this morning. Man, it's the, it, uh, it, it seems like we've been in 2024 for a minute already, but this is the first Sunday of the new year. And so, man, it's, it, it's great to see you. I'm glad that you're here. It's good to have some of you back. It's like we swapped. You know, we got some of you back from travel and sickness, and then we have a whole other group now that's out for sickness. And so that's just kind of the nature of the beast. Uh, around these times, but man, I'm glad for the those of you that are that are back with us. And man, I hope that this year in 2024, when I I'm hoping that everybody here is bound and determined that 2024 is going to be the most fruitful year of your life. I really do. That's my prayer for me, and that's my prayer for you. And I I I, I truly hope that's the case. But we're coming off of the heels this morning. We're coming off of the heels of some special messages. We obviously had special messages for Christmas Eve, and then we, we observed the Lord's Supper last week on New Year's Eve. But, but now that we're on the other side of that, this morning we are going to continue our verse-by-verse study of the book of 2 Thessalonians. We, we find ourselves right in the middle, basically, of chapter 2. But leading up to this point in the chapter, man, we have covered quite a bit of ground. In, in fact, we've covered what many consider to be the most difficult verses in the entire New Testament. At at the beginning of this chapter, we saw that this church of the Thessalonians, which had otherwise been a model church, they found themselves tangled up in some false doctrine as it relates to end time theology. The, The church of the Thessalonians, they believed that they were already living in the tribulation period. I, I can't even imagine waking up tomorrow and believing that. But that was what they were convinced to believe. There was seemingly some sort of confusion as to the timing of the rapture, and they believed they were living in the tribulation period. And so as you can imagine, if that was you, it had did the same thing to them as it would do for us. It, it had stolen their hope, and we saw how that happened. And man, if you have ever felt like you have lost hope in your life, you can attest to the fact that losing your hope is no small thing. And, and Paul, Silas, and Timothy, as they're writing this letter, they're trying to give this church hope and comfort, and while at the same time they're exhorting them and they're admonishing them, And they begin to lay out for them some of the things that would be going on and some of the things that they would actually be seeing if they really were in the midst of the tribulation period. And so one of the things they do is they begin to to describe for them in verse 4 what's commonly known as and referred to oftentimes biblically as the abomination of desolation. this This is the moment that the Antichrist sits down on the throne of the rebuilt temple in Jerusalem at the midway point of the seven-year tribulation period. And and this is the moment the Antichrist is revealed for who he really is. The Jews are going to realize something isn't right when he plops down on that throne. And as Paul, Silas, and Timothy, as they continue writing, they begin to describe something in the following verses that without comparing Scripture with Scripture, would be unbelievably difficult and challenging for all of us to understand without using the key of Bible study that we sometimes call the key of comparison or comparing Scripture with Scripture. And and what they begin to describe in verses 6 and 7 is that the Antichrist is going to receive a deadly head wound and Satan himself 
is going to take up residence inside of that body and resurrect it from the dead. And, and there's no doubt that, man, at this point in the story, as all this is going on and as all this is unfolding, and if you were just an outsider looking in, you'd have to think, man, this story is not looking too promising for the good guys. This is not trending in the right direction, but you see, we know the end of the story, and so we don't see it that way. But at this moment, things aren't looking good. But as our passage continues in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, the next thing we're going to see that Paul, Silas, and Timothy remind the church of the Thessalonians of, and they, they want to remind our church of, is the way that God ultimately wins. The way God ultimately wins. In, in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 8 is where we're going to pick back up in our study of the book of 2 Thessalonians this morning. And it says, And then shall that wicked be revealed, whom the Lord shall consume with the Spirit of his mouth and shall destroy with the brightness of his coming. The Antichrist, listen, he receives the deadly head wound and, and he becomes Satan incarnate as Satan, of course, takes up residence inside of him. And then he goes to the temple in Jerusalem and he sits down as God in the temple in Jerusalem. And again, at that time, the Antichrist is revealed for who he really is but as this verse goes on to say, there's coming a day for that wicked where the jig is up, man. According to this verse, Jesus will consume him and destroy him. You see, all the way back to the beginning, like 1 Peter 5.8 describes, Satan has been like a roaring lion roaming around the earth and walking about, and he's been seeking whom he may devour, and he's had his way devouring countless people all through the years. But there's coming a day when he'll be the one getting devoured. <laughs> For all these years, like Ephesians 6.11 says, we've had to put on the armor of God in order to stand against the wiles of the devil or stand against Satan's attacks. But there's coming a day in which he'll no longer be the one doing the attacking and he'll be the one on the receiving end of the attacks. For all these years, like James 4, 7 says, we've had to resist the devil so that he would flee from us. But there's coming a day where the devil will wish he had somewhere to flee, but there will be nowhere for him to escape. And here's how God's going to do it. He's going to do it with the spirit of his mouth is what we learn. He's going to do it with the spirit of his mouth. That's what 2 Thessalonians 2.8 says. Jesus is going to consume the Antichrist with the spirit of his mouth. The Antichrist is taken out of the way. Satan enters his body, and, and as Satan in human flesh, he will ultimately be consumed with the spirit of Jesus' mouth. Now, what's the spirit of his mouth. Revelation 19:11 gives us some insight into this as they as it describes the same thing. Here's what it says. And I saw heaven opened, and behold a white horse, and he that sat upon him was called faithful and true, and in righteousness he doth judge and make war. 
His eyes were as a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. And he had a name written that no man knew but he himself, and he was clothed with a vesture dipped in blood. And his name is called the Word of God. <laughs> John 1, 1 says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and it's describing Jesus. His name is called the Word of God. Verse 14, And the armies which were in heaven followed him upon white horses, clothed in fine linen, white and clean. Here it is. And out of his mouth goeth a sharp sword that with it he should smite the nations, and he shall rule them with a rod of iron, and he treadeth the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. Jesus will consume the Antichrist with the spirit of his mouth. And verse 15 says that out of his mouth goes what? A sharp sword. <laughs> Ephesians 6.17 calls the word of God the sword of the spirit the antichrist is consumed by what's coming out of jesus mouth and what's coming out of his mouth is spirit and it's a sharp sword it's the sword of the spirit which is the word of god Amen. hebrews 4 12 says for the word of god is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. The word of God is, 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 again, it's referred to here as a sharp sword. In a prophecy out of the book of Isaiah, in Isaiah 11:4, it says, but with, the righteous, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and reprove with equity for the meek of the earth, and he shall smite the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips shall he slay. The wicked, and that includes that wicked as well. God created the world by his word. He spoke it into existence. Jesus was the word made flesh. He then preserved for us his written word, and now he's again using his word, and this time it's to consume that wicked one. And listen, this is going to be quite a sight. Because the world is going to be looking at the Antichrist in so much wonder that they won't be able to imagine that anybody could be more amazing than this guy. Revelation 13.4 describes the scene like this. In the Revelation 13.4 it says, And they worshipped the dragon which gave power unto the beast, and they worshipped the beast, that's the Antichrist, saying, who is like unto the beast? Who is able to make war with him? People are sitting there saying, ain't nobody got it like this guy got it. Right. Nobody's like him and who could possibly make war with him? Man, this guy is the man. So you can imagine how it's going to blow their minds when Jesus shows up and he consumes the Antichrist with the sword of the spirit of his mouth, the word of God. Now, I want you to look at something with me from the first book of the Bible that was ever written, which is not Genesis, but the book of Job. Uh, Job was, of course, the first book that was actually written. If you were there for the series on Job that Corey recently did, you understand how many incredible truths are found in this book. And, and I want to show you one of those from Job 14, 15. 
in Job 14, 15, God is talking to Job in this verse, and he says, Behold now, behemoth, which I made with thee, he eateth grass as an ox. And in this chapter, we, we get some really interesting insights into the Antichrist. When you actually study Behemoth in the way he's described, you realize that this isn't actually some sort of animal like a hippopotamus that's being described like so many people believe. As calculated as God is in his word, no, he did not set aside ten verses in this chapter to describe a hippopotamus. He's doing a whole lot more than that for goodness sakes. In the next chapter, God does the same thing. Chapter 40, God calls him Behemoth. In chapter 41, he calls him Leviathan. And they're both describing the Antichrist. But I want you to see this word Behemoth. This word Behemoth, it's, it's, a, it's a transliteration is what it is. It's, it's when the King James translators, they came to a particular word and they said, this word doesn't really translate. So instead of making an attempt at translating a word that doesn't translate in English, they transliterate it. In other words, they give you the word as they found it, and oftentimes they may change a few letters around to help us pronounce it in English. And so that's what they did with the word behemoth. Now the word means animals or beasts. Okay, It's a it's a Plural word, though, is what I want to make sure that you understand. The, the O-T-H that's on the ending of a, of a Hebrew word it's the pl- makes it the plural form of the word. Otherwise, it would be animal or beast. But the O-T-H, it makes it plural, so it's animals or beasts. And it's interesting because as the plural word behemoth is used in this passage... All the pronouns to describe the plural word are singular. Isn't that something? Job chapter 40, beginning in verse 15, it says, Behold now behemoth, that's plural, which I made with thee. He eateth grass as an ox, not they. Lo, now his strength is in his loins, and his force is in the navel of his belly. He moveth his tail like a cedar. The sinews of his stones are wrapped together. His bones are as strong pieces of brass. His bo- you get the idea. And he goes on and on through these verses the same way. It keeps going, but you get the point. A plural word in which singular pronouns are repeatedly used. Now that seems strange, doesn't it, for our inspired, inerrant word of God? Are we to believe that this is an error in the Bible or, or maybe God just didn't know enough about languages to, to get the pronouns right? Or could God just be pointing us to something just like he does every time you think he made a mistake? No, when he makes a mistake, when you think he made a mistake, he's doing something. So let's think about this for a second. Can you think of an animal that is really animals? Or can you think of a beast just so happens to be what the Antichrist is referred to. Can you think of a beast that is really beasts? Back to Revelation 13, Revelation 13, 2. 
And the beast which I saw was like unto a leopard, and his feet were as the feet of a bear, and his mouth as the mouth of a lion. Do you see what we have here? The beast is a combination of beasts. So Job 40 starts to make a whole lot more sense. And did you notice what Job 40.15 said about Behemoth? He eats grass as an ox. Now why would God take up space in his word with details like that? There's only one person that ate grass as an ox in the Bible. And if you were here a couple weeks ago, we talked about this person who is one of the main types of antichrist in the Bible, and his name is Nebuchadnezzar. Have you ever seen in Daniel 4, 32 and 33, it says that God caused Nebuchadnezzar to eat grass as an ox? What a random thing to do, unless you're trying to point us to something. And again, Nebuchadnezzar is one of the greatest types of Antichrist in the Bible. And through Behemoth, God is showing us that there's a beast that's really beasts. And he eats grass like an ox. And through all of that, God is pointing us to the Antichrist. When we go back to where we just were in Job 40, we see in the second half of verse 19... It says that he that made him can make his sword to approach unto him. You see that? Even though the Antichrist is going to show up and there's not going to be anybody like him, the sword of the one that made him is going to approach him and is going to consume him. It's all the same thing. The book of Job talks about it. Revelation 19 talks about it. It's the same thing 2 Thessalonians 2 is talking about when it says, what will become of the Antichrist as God ultimately wins. So after Satan embodies the person of the Antichrist, ultimately the Lord Jesus Christ will consume him with the word of God that proceeds out of his mouth. But not only will the Antichrist be consumed by the word of God proceeding out of Jesus' mouth, the Lord will also destroy him with the brightness of his coming. That's the other way that Jesus ultimately wins, with the brightness of of his coming. That's what the it's exactly what the last part of 2 Thessalonians 2:8 says. The Lord will destroy him with the brightness of his coming. So not only will he be consumed with the word of God, but also destroyed by the brightness or the glory of his coming. And, and as we begin looking at the brightness of Jesus coming, I want us to take a look at Matthew chapter 16. In Matthew chapter 16, Beginning in verse 27, Jesus, he, he's talking to his disciples and he says, for the son of man, which is a reference to himself, for the son of man shall come in the glory of his father with his angels. And then he shall reward every man according to his works. Now, listen, let's make sure that we understand the context of this verse. I need you guys to to hang with me here. Everything is building to something else. We. We, the, the, the context here is, is, is we need to, uh, that we need to understand is, is the, what is the event that Jesus just described? It's his second coming, isn't it? Now look at the next verse. Jesus says in Matthew 16, 28, Verily I say unto you, there be some standing here which shall not taste of death 
until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Wow, that's kind of wild. It just became 2024. So that either means that there, that means that there's either walking around right now, people that are approaching 2,000 years old, or we need to keep reading and see if maybe God's talking about something else. Because in the next verse, which is the first verse of the next chapter, beginning in Matthew 17, in verse 1, it says, And after six days, Jesus taketh Peter, James, and John, his brother, and bringeth them up into a high mountain apart, and was transfigured before them, and his face did shine as the sun, and his raiment was white as the light. Jesus was transfigured in front of Peter, James, and John. His body was transfigured or transformed right in front of their eyes. And, and remember, according to John 1.14, the Word was made flesh. Keep in mind, the Word had always existed, but there was a day in which He was given a body and was made flesh. So the Word was made flesh in the person of Jesus Christ, the verse says, we beheld his glory, the glory, as of the only begotten of the Father. Jesus came to earth and he was and is the glory of the Father. That glory that has always been his from everlasting. But the glory that was his was veiled by human flesh that surrounded the glory of the Father. That earthly body was a veil to the glory that was Christ. And so Jesus takes Peter, James, and John, and he, and, he, and he pulls back the veil of his flesh, and Jesus allows them to see him in the glory of his Father, that same glory that will be his at the second coming. And that's what Jesus was talking about in the last two verses of the previous chapter when he said, There be some standing here which shall not taste of death, till they see the Son of Man coming in His kingdom. And He was coming in the glory of the Father, that glory that will be His at the second coming. That's what's happening. It's a transfiguration. And just so I could never be accused of taking liberties with this passage that aren't there, in 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 16 through 18, Peter, one of the three that was there in person, he says, He'd made known the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, and he was an eyewitness of his majesty. And he continues then to describe in detail what went on in the mountain. It's as clear as it can be if you compare Scripture with Scripture. And what we see is that what happened in this mountain, it's a picture of the second coming of Jesus Christ. And what happened again according to Matthew 17 too? He was transfigured before them, and his face did shine as the sun, and his raiment was white as light. Jesus shined as the sun, and his raiment was white as the light, because as our passage for study in 2 Thessalonians 2 tells us, Jesus will destroy the Antichrist with the brightness of his coming at his second coming. In Revelation 19.20, it says the way it's going to go down is, when Christ comes at his second coming with the brightness of his coming, the Antichrist will be cast alive into a lake of fire burning with brimstone. Revelation 20.10 says he'll be tormented there forever, 
and ever. He'll be destroyed by the brightness of Jesus' coming and by the glory of the Father as it's unveiled at the second coming. In Malachi 4, we, we learn more about the brightness of Jesus' coming. Verses 2 and 3 say, But unto you that fear my name shall the Son of Righteousness arise with healing in his wings, and ye shall go forth and grow up as calves of the stall, and ye shall tread down the wicked, for they shall be ashes under the soles of your feet in the day that I shall do this, saith the Lord of hosts. The Son of Righteousness. What an incredible term. The capital S-U-N of Righteousness, which also happens to be the capital S-O-N of Righteousness because it's none other than the Son of God, Jesus Christ. And just as sure as the S-U-N will rise, the S-O-N will return, and the S-O-N will return in the brightness of the S-U-N. That's what Malachi 4, 2, and 3 says. And look at the previous verse in Malachi 4, 1. It says, For behold, the day cometh that shall burn as in oven, and all the proud, yea, all that do wickedly shall be stubble, and the day that cometh shall burn them up, saith the Lord of hosts, that it shall leave them neither root nor branch. There's that brightness and glory of the coming of the Son of Righteousness, which shall destroy the Antichrist. Psalm 97 prophesies about the second coming like this. Have you ever seen the consistency with which the Word of God describes this? Psalm 97, 1, it says, The Lord reigneth. Let the earth rejoice. Let the multitude of isles be glad thereof. Clouds and darkness are round about him. Righteousness and judgment are the habitation of his throne. A fire goeth before him and burneth up his enemies round about. His lightnings enlightened the world. The earth saw and trembled. The hills melted like wax at the presence of the Lord, at the presence of the Lord of the whole earth. The heavens declare his righteousness and all the people see his glory. Listen, he's coming in the glory of the Father in the brightness of his coming. And we already saw this a month or so ago in the same book we're, we're even studying, 2 Thessalonians 1, 7 and 8. It says Jesus is coming back in flaming fire or in the brightness of his coming. Listen, everywhere you go in the Bible, it all lines up. It all say, they're all saying the same thing. We, we saw it from Matthew. We saw it from 2 Peter. We saw it in Revelation. We saw it in Malachi. We saw it in Psalms. We saw it in 2 Thessalonians. They're all saying the same thing about the same event. We're talking about a book that was written by more than 40 men in three languages on three continents over a period of time of about 2,000 years, and they all said the same thing. <laughs> That's unbelievable. So we've seen that, that God ultimately wins and the Antichrist will be consumed by the word of God and destroyed by the glory of God. And then as Paul, Silas, and Timothy continue in this chapter, they tell us that prior to God ultimately winning, they tell us some of the things that the Antichrist is going to do leading up to that. They, so they tell us the way the Antichrist will work. The way the Antichrist will work. 2 Thessalonians 
2.8 is the verse we just studied. It, it shows us God will ultimately win. He's going to destroy the Antichrist. But as the chapter continues, God reveals to us how the Antichrist is going to be working on this planet prior to him being destroyed. And what we're about to see is, is that one of the ways he works is through miracles. He works through miracles. Second Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 9, it says, even, even him, that's the Antichrist, whose coming is after the working of Satan. Remember, the Antichrist rece receives the deadly head wounds. Satan takes up residence inside of his body, and Satan works through that human body. He is then <clears throat> Satan in human flesh, similar to how Jesus was God in human flesh. It's just the counterfeit. And here's how he'll work when he comes. With all power and signs and lying wonders. So the coming of the Antichrist is, is after the working of Satan. Satan inhabits the body of the Antichrist after the, after the head wound again, three and a half years into that tribulation or in the middle of the tribulation period. And after that happens, though, the Antichrist is about to put on a show. He is. He's about to put on a display of miracles and wonders and signs and miraculous powers. And this is how Revelation 13, 13 through 15 describes the wonders and miracles that the Antichrist is going to do. Check this out. This is what he's going to do on this planet. And he doeth great wonders, so that he maketh fire come down from heaven on earth in the sight of men, and deceiveth them that dwell on the earth by the means of those miracles, which he had power to do in the sight of the beast, saying to them that dwell on the earth, that they should make an image to the beast, which had the wound by a sword and did live, and he had power to give life unto the image of the beast, that the image of the beast should both speak, and cause that as many as would not worship the image of the beast should be killed. Listen, he performs wonders and miracles, and he's using those wonders and he's using those miracles to deceive, just like Second Thessalonians 2, 9 and 10 says. And as you can see, there's some mind-boggling miracles and wonders that are going to be on display here. The Antichrist is going to do more than just this false resurrection even. He brings down fire from heaven. He's going to give life to the image of a beast to the point where the image speaks, for goodness sakes. And listen, with the place in history that we are at currently, there's almost no doubt that there are people that you and I know, maybe even people in this room that will be first-hand account eyewitnesses of all of that that we just described here. That's how late in the game it is, and that's how real it is. Believers are going to be raptured out of here, but unbelievers that we currently know, again, maybe some in this room, people we're friends with, there's a really good chance they're going to witness these wonders and these miracles. And it's pretty wild how the stage is set for the world to be deceived by the miraculous, isn't it? The stage is set. I mean, we eat that stuff up. We love that. People are looking for an experience. They're looking for an emotion. They're looking for wonders and miracles. This is happening all throughout the charismatic and Pentecostal movements. 
<clears throat> I mean, some of these guys on TV, they're out there deceiving the world with so-called miracles and wonders and healing, and people are eating it up so much so that these guys are given enough money by people to fly by private jet, the whole, you know the whole thing. It's unbelievable, and it's, and it's pretty wild how we got here. Because you see, the sign gifts ultimately ceased. That can be shown biblically and historically. Sign gifts were never meant to last for the rest of history. The sign gifts were for a sign specifically to unbelieving Jews. 1 Corinthians one twenty two teaches us the Jews require a sign. The sign gifts like healing and speaking in tongues were there for a, a sign to unbelieving Jews to give them certainty as to who was speaking on behalf of God prior to the completion of the New Testament. But we can see these gifts didn't continue forever, nor were they ever meant to. And in fact, we see them going away even in places like Philippians 2.25. Have you ever seen this? Paul isn't able to heal anymore. <laughs> Paul says in verse 25, Yet I suppose it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and companion in labor, my fellow soldier, but your messenger and he that ministered to my wants. For he longed after you all and was full of heaviness because that he had heard that he had been sick. For indeed, he was sick. How bad? Nigh unto death. But God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. Epaphroditus, listen, Epaphroditus is Paul's brother, his companion in labor. This is his fellow soldier, and this guy ministered to Paul. And if Paul would have lost him, he would have had sorrow upon sorrow. So why did Paul let him get nigh unto death and not heal him? That seems strange, doesn't it? In Acts chapter 20 and verses 9 and 10, Paul raised a guy named Eutychus from the dead, and now he can't heal the sick? What happened? God's phasing out the sign gifts. In 1 Timothy 5.23, it says, Drink no longer water, but use a little wine for thy stomach's sake and thine often infirmity. Why not just go to the church with one of the people at the church with the healing gifts instead of using some sort of home remedies for your stomach issues, right? Why are you using essential oils when you got the, he the healing gifts? And it, because the sign gifts were never meant to last forever. In 2 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 20, Paul left Trophimus behind because he was sick. Well, I'll be doggone. Why not just heal him, Paul? What are we doing here? Why not just heal him like you've done so many other times for so many other people? I mean, for goodness sakes, in Acts 28, 8 and 9, Paul was healing people. He was healing random people. Why not his friend and co-laborer? Because he couldn't. Because <laughs> the sign gifts were ceasing. And listen, they had ceased from then, and they were dormant for 1,800 years years and then in the early 1900s all of a sudden a group is claiming that they're back 1800 years no sign gifts and boom there they supposedly are 
And so it begins in the early 1900s after being dormant for 1,800 years and about 1960s or so. It's in full force throughout many religious denominations where it remains in full force to this day. And these people are elevating the experience and the emotion of this movement that's filled with power and signs and, and wonder. And they're elevating what they perceive to be power, signs, and wonders, and that experience and that emotion over what the Word of God says. And if you try to reason with some of them, in many cases, they actually won't take you to the Bible. They'll take you to an experience that you just had to be there for. And do you see what's actually happening? Satan is greasing the rails. He's greasing the rails for what's coming in the very near future because in the near future, the Antichrist is going to show up and he's going to deceive with power, signs, and lying wonders. He's already got the stage set because so many have already bought into that hook, line, and sinker. But just like 2 Thessalonians 2.9 says, they're, they're going to be lying wonders. <laughs> now, a lot of these guys today, they're doing a lot of lying wonders because a lot of what they're doing is not real, it's fake. And, and my biggest issue actually isn't so much whether or not it's real or fake. My issue is the power behind it. Most of what we see is fake, but what if it was real? You see, the Antichrist is going to do legit wonders. It's just that they'll be lying wonders because the power behind the, the wonders won't be the power of the Holy Spirit. It'll be the power of the working of Satan. And yes, Jesus can heal anytime he jolly well pleases. But if some guy is running around healing and he's actually doing it, you better check his power source. That's not how God's working right now. Because, listen, we view our experiences through the lens of the Word of God. We don't, we, we, we don't base the Word of God through the lens of our experiences. You understand that? Because the truth of the Word of God will never change. God's Word is in this book, and it's set in stone, and that's a wrap. So if you seemingly witness a or have this miraculous experience and someone is healed, are you going to go with what you think you saw or are you going to go with the word of God? That's why that principle laid out for us in Galatians 1.8 is so important. It says, even if an angel from heaven tells you any different than what we've told you, don't believe him. And what Satan did in the early 1900s is, is he began greasing the rails for what was coming in the tribulation period, and he's using false doctrine to do it. And listen, he's greasing the rails for what's coming in a variety of other ways, too. This isn't the only way he's greasing the rails. Revelation 13, verses 16 and, and 17 says this about the Antichrist. It says, He causeth all, both small and great, rich and poor, free and bond, to receive a mark in their right hand or in their foreheads. And that no man might buy or sell, save he that had the mark or the name of the beast or the number of his name. Listen, y'all, we've got the technology to do this right now. This is already being done with microchips, man. And you know what Satan's doing? He's greasing the rails and getting everyone prepared for what's coming. He's setting the stage. He's normalizing it. How about the one world religion? 
man, the Antichrist is going to bring in a one world religion. And he's been way ahead of the game on this one because it's a religion he's had in place for centuries. It's a religion whose name literally means universal. The universal church is what the name actually means. That's what Catholic means, y'all. It means universal, the universal church. Bright light, headlights on it. What's the universal, re- what's the universal religion going to be? The one that's called universal. <laughs> Satan's already had that one in place all this time. And even the name of the church is a dead giveaway. And Satan doesn't care because no one's paying enough attention to figure it out. Satan's greasing the rails. He's setting the stage for what's to come at every turn. Earlier we were in Job 40. We are talking about how God is, is laying out some of the details about the Antichrist through the, the beast or the beasts that's called behemoth. But had, did you notice what I read out of Job 40.17, a very specific detail about the Antichrist? The second half of the verse says, the sinews of his stones are wrapped together. Well, what in the world does that mean? Sinews are like, a, they're like ligaments or they're like tendons or tissue. Stones in the Bible are male genitalia. That isn't just something that you and your buddies called them <laughs> when your parents weren't listening. That's actually... That's actually, that's Bible. Deuteronomy 23.1 describes it like this. He that is wounded in the stones or hath his privy member cut off shall not enter into the congregation of the Lord. Do I need to describe what having your privy member cut off is? I don't, I, I don't, I don't think that I do. What did you guys talk about in church today? Well, <laughs> it, it references being wounded in the stones. It's biblical description of male genitalia. I'm not making this up. This is consistent. So when Job 40 teaches us that the Antichrist will have the sinews of his stones wrapped together, we begin to understand why the world has become nothing short of obsessed with the transgender movement. I mean, you have to ask yourself, with such a small percentage of people in the world that claim to be transgender, why is the world obsessed with it? It's because the Antichrist is going to have the sinews of his stones wrapped together. He's going to be some sort of transgender. And listen, we don't dislike transgender people around here. In fact, we love them. We don't get any joy out of bashing them whatsoever. We love them and care for them, and they're sinners in need of a Savior, just like every one of us was at some point in our life. They need Jesus. That is the true cure, the solution to the problem that they're facing. We're not trying to clean them up to get them to Jesus. No, we're trying to get them to Jesus, and Jesus will clean them up. And I pray they all find that. But I'm telling you this so that you'll see what's going on in the world and you'll see it for what it is through a biblical lens, from a biblical perspective. It's going to make some sense of some things for you. But I'm just telling you that movement has been forced in front of us with such relentless 
effort, and it's all because Satan is setting the stage for the Antichrist, who will be transgender. He's doing the same thing. Everywhere you turn, he's greasing the rails. And it's exactly what he's doing with the charismatic and Pentecostal movement. He's setting the stage for the Antichrist, who will show up with power, signs, and lying wonders. But in addition to the Antichrist working through this display of miracles, he's also going to show up and work through deceivableness of unrighteousness. Through deceivableness of unrighteousness. That's what the next verse, verse 10 says. Verse 9 says the Antichrist shows up and works through power, signs, and lying wonders. Verse 10 says, And with all deceivableness of unrighteousness in them that perish, because they received not the love of the truth that they might be saved. This verse breaks my heart, man. It should be no surprise that the Antichrist is going to work through deceivableness. <laughs> Satan and the mystery of iniquity or that spirit of Antichrist, they've always been out deceiving and, and working through deceit. And, and that deceit manifests itself in different ways. And we've already seen some of the ways, one of the ways being through false teaching. One of the other ways this deceit can manifest itself is through unrighteousness, the deceivableness of unrighteousness. And listen, Ephesians 4.22, it talks about deceitful lusts. There's something deceitful about those lusts and that unrighteousness. There's something very deceitful about it. Hebrews 3.13 talks about the deceitfulness of sin. But, it, but it's interesting, because when we get to the book of James, we get some insight into the fact that it's actually that we're the problem when it comes to giving in to lust, and he doesn't actually mention anything in this verse about Satan. James 1, 13 through 15, it says, Let no man say when he's tempted, I'm tempted of God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempteth he any man. But every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. Then when lust hath conceived, it bringeth forth sin, and sin, when it is finished, bringeth forth death. Listen, Satan could fall off into hell tomorrow, and we would all wake up the next day in a knockdown drag out with our flesh, with or without him. But here's how it works. Satan is working in conjunction with our flesh. That's how he does it. He knows where we're weak, and he attacks there. He can't make us sin, but he is the ultimate carrot dangler. He dangles that carrot at the right place at the right time in hopes that you'll be drawn away of your own lust. That's how Satan has always worked. That will be no different than when the Antichrist gets to work. He's going to work through the deceivableness of unrighteousness. He's going to continue dangling carrots in hopes that people will continue taking the bait. But that unrighteousness in, in that sin is just as our passage says. It's, it's very deceivable. It's, it's very deceitful, isn't it? Like this passage in James says, it's, it's enticing. It's, it's alluring to us. It looks so enjoyable and, and so fulfilling and pleasant on the outside. But once you bite into it, you ultimately figure out it is rotten to the core. It's deceivable or it's, it's deceitful because it promises pleasure. But when it's finished, it brings forth anything but pleasure. It brings guilt. It brings consequences. It brings death, ultimately. 
That's where sin and unrighteousness have taken everyone that went down those paths for all of human history. And it would have taken us all there too had it not been for the blood of Jesus Christ. So that's the way the Antichrist is going to work in the tribulation period. He's going to work through power, signs, and lying wonders. He's going to work through the deceivableness of unrighteousness. And then what this passage lays out for us next is the way God handles obstinate unbelievers. The way God handles obstinate unbelievers. Let's go back to 2 Thessalonians 2.10 and let's read through verse 12. It, It says the Antichrist will operate with all deceivableness of unrighteousness in them that perish. Because they received not the love of the truth that they might be saved. And for this cause, God shall send them strong delusion that they should believe a lie. That they all might be damned who believed not the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. Now listen, there will be hundreds of thousands of people that will be saved during the tribulation period. Uh, Revelation 7 and 14 gives us insight into the 144,000. So we know there's at least going to be 144,000 saved Jews that will be on the planet without even looking any further than that. But, But though there will be people that are saved in the tribulation period, most people are going to do what they're going to do what verse 10 says. They're going to perish. And why are they going to perish? Because they weren't chosen before the foundation of the world. Is that why? Because God didn't want them. Because God didn't love them. Because they never heard the truth. No, verse 10 says, because they received not the love of the truth that they might be saved. (laughs) You see, the word receive means that something had to be Something had to be offered and presented in order for there to be the opportunity to receive it. So the truth was offered, and they didn't receive it. They didn't love the truth they heard, so they didn't receive it or accept it so that they might be saved, and as a result, they perished. And listen, this may just be the reality for people in this room, and it certainly is for people that we know. There are many folks out there, maybe even in here, that have heard the gospel, some of them, many times, and they will not receive the love of the truth. They've heard that they're sinners, and because of that sin, it had separated them from God, and that sin demanded a penalty. They've heard that Jesus then stepped in, and and he took our place to pay that penalty on the cross, and that now he has commanded us to call on the name of Jesus and put our faith in him and his work on the cross to be saved. But despite hearing that, they haven't received it. And if the rapture were to happen right now, their fate would be sealed. And if you're thinking, nah, I got you on this one. My fate won't be sealed because once I see the rapture, I'm going to get saved. No, you won't. And here's why. God will send you strong delusion so you can't play that game anymore. That's how God's going to handle obstinate unbelievers after the rapture. God will send them strong delusion. Back to 2 Thessalonians 
chapter 2, verses 10 through 12, and pick up in the second half of verse 10. Because they received not the love of the truth that they might be saved, and for this cause, what cause? Because they refused to receive the truth that was offered to them, for that cause or that reason, God shall send them strong delusion that they should believe a lie, that they all might be damned who believe not the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. God is going to send them strong delusion so that they will believe a lie. God says, you wanted to believe a lie in this life and you had pleasure in unrighteousness and you refused to receive the love of the truth that was freely offered to you. So he says, your life has conveyed to me that you want to believe a lie, so I'm just going to continue letting you believe that lie that you tell me that you want. Listen, God always gives us what our lives tell us, tell him that we want. I want a million dollars. No, not what our mouths tell him that we want, what our lives tell him that we want. If our life says, I want a lie, then eventually he'll let you have that lie. But if your life says, I want the truth, then he'll let you have that too. If your life says, God, I want a more intimate relationship with you in 2024 than I've ever had, and your life is reflecting that by the time you spend with God and the decisions and the choices that you make, he'll give you exactly what your life says that that you want. And that's exactly what God is doing with those that reject the truth of God so as to be saved prior to the rapture, thinking that once they witness the rapture, then they'll get saved. God says, I'm not playing that game. God says, if you're alive for the rapture and you've refused to receive the truth and you've chosen to believe a lie, then after the rapture, I'm going to let you have the lie. I'm going to let you keep believing it. You won't get to witness the rapture and then rush to God for salvation. So we see that God will send strong delusion to those that reject the truth prior to the rapture and are here during the tribulation. And we also see the way that God will handle obstinate unbelievers. And that is, letter B, he will damn them. He will damn them. I want you to to look at how God describes those who refuse to receive the love of the truth and are consequently damned. What's at the heart of their problem, according to verse 12? According to verse 12, what's at the heart of the problem? What does this verse contrast with believing not the truth? We already saw they didn't receive the truth, so we know they were offered it, so we know it's not that. Is it they, they didn't believe the truth because... They couldn't understand it intellectually? Is that, was that their problem? Is it because it was just so far-fetched that they just couldn't buy it? No, none of those things. Those that are referenced in these verses that had the opportunity to be saved and refused to receive the love of the truth, and so after the rapture, God sends them strong delusion, they didn't believe because they had pleasure in unrighteousness. Again, they may have used intellectual roadblocks as the reason why. They might have told you that. They may have used a variety of things as their excuse. 
But in his final analysis, as far as God is concerned, he says, they didn't believe because they wanted to keep doing what they were doing. They wanted to do what they wanted to do and didn't want to answer to me. They were having pleasure in unrighteousness and they didn't want anyone trying to stop them. And consequently, God will ultimately damn them. Listen, if you're sitting here and you've refused to receive the truth, there is coming a day where you're going to be out of chances. God has probably graciously given you much more than one in your life. That day that there's no more chances is either the day that you die or at the rapture. It's going to be one of those two, whichever comes first. You're going to wish that you died before the rapture if you don't have Jesus. Because once you die, it's too late. And according to this passage, if you didn't receive the truth you've been offered, it will be too late at the rapture. Because similar to how you're deceived now from receiving the truth, you're going to be deceived then from receiving the truth. Don't wait till it's too late. What are you waiting for, man? Those of us that do believe, who do you need to call this week and get together with in hopes of sharing that truth before it's too late? Who is it? Who, who is it in your life that you need to call this week in hopes of sharing that truth before it's too late? What if tonight or maybe tomorrow, what if you did something as crazy as texting them and seeing if they wanted to get coffee? Imagine that. Imagine that. What if you did something as crazy as texting someone who needs the love of Jesus Christ and asking them if they wanted to grab some lunch and praying that you might have the opportunity to share the gospel with them. The hour is late if you've never called on the name of Jesus to save you. Will you make today the day? Father, thank you for your word and, and we love you and we thank you for your holiness. We thank you for your righteousness. We thank you for how just you are God. You have given so many of us so many chances and opportunities. I pray, God, for any here today that are not saved. I pray today would be the day of salvation. I pray the urgency would be in their heart. I pray for those of us that are saved, God. I pray that the urgency would be there as well, understanding the reality of the future. God, you laid it out for us crystal clear, and you've told us how this thing is going to shake out. God, we, we, we've been called to be your voice to the world. We've been, we, we are now the body of Christ. I pray, God, that as the body of Christ, we would be used to minister to others. Would you give us people, that, would you bring people to our hearts and minds that we can reach out to this week and make an intentional effort to get in front of so that they might be saved, so that they might get one more chance before it's too late. We love you, Lord. In your name we pray. Amen.